10 years ago when I first, uh, you know, when I first registered this company, I was looking at a video by a very, very famous portfolio company of a, of a famous uh, Silicon Valley company called Excel Ventures uh, in Palo Alto. So this company, they showed a video of a young lady waking up in the morning, going to the kitchen dining table, having her cereal. And instead of a marble or a wooden table, it's an LCD glass table. And then all these um, icons started popping up, right? And then she starts tapping on it, beep, 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 beep. And then all these biometrics start popping up. So I think we're actually two to three years away from that. This is Startup Island Taiwan, the channel all about cutting-edge technology, influential global tech layers, and Taiwan. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John from the Asian Armature YouTube channel. I'm your guest host today, and I'm here today with Ed Deng, founder and CEO of health to sync Welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, John. Thanks for having me. Now, I really look forward to this one as well, because I think the opportunity to talk about health, which is kind of touches everyone, is always a, interesting because it's such a difficult space for a lot of people. So how about we start with the product? Tell us a little bit about what health to sync is about and how it benefits people. Sure. Well, John, as you said, right, health is important. So let me take a step back and say what we're trying to solve. You know, most of us who have lived in Taiwan for a long time, we enjoy national health insurance. And apparently, of the top eight spending of our national health insurance, number one, AKD, CKD, chronic kidney disease. That's around uh, uh, number three, diabetes, number four is hypertension, six is heart failure, eight is stroke. So one, two, three, six, and seven are directly or indirectly related to chronic diseases. So this is a massive problem um, if we want this nice benefit that the country is offering to sustain and to continue, right? Huge costs. At the individual level, at the patient level, we are trying to make disease management easier for individuals as well as for their family members. And, you know, the real reason why I started all this is um, I grew up in a family of diabetics. All the seniors, all my grandparents, uh, they've all passed now, were type 2 diabetic. And all of them passed away from type 2 complications. At the same time, I happen to come from a family of doctors. So all the males, all the uncles, my father, my brother, my grandfather, they're all practice internal medicine. So from very, very early on, I saw how those that have data, when I say data, I mean like, you know, in diabetes, you prick your finger and you measure glucose. As with all industry, all discipline, those that have data can build knowledge around the data, can act on it, and therefore live longer. So the, the whole idea in the very beginning was making data available to patients and family members and doctors and enabling better care with that data. So when you started on this product, how did the vision come to fruition? Like, how did you develop it into something that people can use? You know, going back to the family story, right? My surviving grandmother, um, you know, 10, 20 years ago, she pricked her finger every day, wrote down the glucose on a piece of paper. And then every day, you know, the family members around her would control what she eats based on that data and take that piece of paper back to the doctor every two to three months to change her medication. So then the idea was not everybody has that data. Not everybody has the support. So in the very beginning, we thought about leveraging the 25 to 30% of the glucometers, glucometers, that are manufactured in Taiwan and exported around the world. So in the beginning, it was a very simple idea, like the micropayment company Square in the US, right? We built this dongle where you plug one into the glucometer, you plug the other end with the audio jack. Back then, the phones, whether it be Android or Apple, were still on the audio jack. So it was a smart cable that sucked up all the data from the glucometer into the smartphone. And then the smartphone would present the data in a digestible manner. 
Um, but that honestly, that was naive. We can we can talk about it, you know, in the next you know uh, fifteen minutes. But we've had to pivot, right? That was how we started in the very beginning. And how's that different? How's it evolved into what it is today? So the idea is, you know, we thought about exporting the smart cable, the app with the glucometers in Taiwan, right? But honestly speaking, you know, ten years ago, the exporters were still getting into you know government bids like Turkey, like Brazil, countries like that. If we built a product, it really wasn't going into the hands of consumers. So then we quickly thought about just having an app, regardless of the of the cable, presenting the solution, you know, listing it on the app store directly, touching users,、uh, consumers around the world. And at the same time, we also realized that with that data, a lot of the people, even if you enable the digestible data, patients need support from their doctors or from nutritionists and diabetes educators. So. Shortly into the into the journey, we also built a web portal that we would give to hospitals and clinics. Upon connecting the users on the app to the doctor's physician's web portal, the physicians can act on the data, right? And nowadays, we have data like you know glucose, blood pressure, weight. And a few months ago, we launched a food recognition AI. So users will will upload their pictures of food and diet. We connect to the Fitbit. We connect to wireless insulin pens now. We connect to、um, the, you know the world's leading、uh, continuous glucose monitor. It's a patch that you wear on your arm, and it just continuously、uh, measures your glucose. So all that data is uploaded to the physician's portal, and then doctors can act on it. And of course, we build algorithms and analytics and features that would enable doctors to be more efficient for better decision making. So that's how we sort of evolved and more right from in the very beginning a cable onto a, a holistic. Care loop solution that includes the healthcare providers and the patients. So you mentioned that it is a pivot, and it's a big pivot to move from a cable to kind of a software solution. What was sort of the thinking, and what was sort of the circumstances that caused? You mentioned a little bit about governments, but talk to me a little bit more about that change and like how did that happen? Okay, so I would call them tiny pivots. These weren't drastic pivots; just you know ways of better presenting a solution to users, or you know we would collect feedback and know we would hear and understand what users and patients want, right? So we would just add on top of that. But I think over the course of the、uh, honestly the last ten years, where we've been around for ten years. Being in Taiwan helped because, again, attribute the fact that we we have national health insurance, so a lot of doctors and clinics are incentivized to do better diabetes care. Therefore, in this ecosystem, doctors would demand better features, more features that would enable efficiency and better care. So, in the last you know six to eight years, we were able to iterate on that product, not just for the doctors, but also for the for the users. So, not drastic pivots, but I would say I would call these enhancements、um, over time. And what's your business model? So, how does this ecosystem、uh, make revenue? So, if you look at healthcare in general, unless it was a, a premium product, right, a better stent, better catheters, a gold cap to your teeth, right, unless it was a premium product, users don't pay out of pocket, patients don't pay out of pocket, and that's the case around the world, whether it be Taiwan, U.S., Japan, what have you. And in many cases, physicians don't pay for solutions, unless it was a gangshu, right, a must-have. So in our case, to be frank, in the very beginning, we were not a gangshu, right? It was it enabled physicians and nurses to do their jobs better. So my point is, in the world of healthcare, ultimately, most of the business model revolves around the payer. Now in Taiwan, the payer is Chiming Jinbao National Healthcare, right? In countries like the U.S., it could be the private payer. So it's usually the private payer or the public payer. So what do we envision as our business model that will you know build us into a hopefully a billion dollar unicorn? It's getting reimbursement, 
Now, the word reimbursement in healthcare means governments pay for a certain drug, governments pay for a certain therapy, governments pay for a certain therapeutic, right? So imagine you going to the hospital, whether it be for a procedure or your routine, uh, you know, dispensing of medication, you pay very little. The government, you know, national health insurance pays for that. So yeah, our business model going forward will be reimbursement. And this is not, you know, we're not going to be the first. We're certainly not going to be the first country because there are countries like Germany, France, even Japan, Korea are starting to to do this in the last two to three years. But historically, in the last two to three years, our revenue, a good chunk of our revenue has come from partnerships, partners like pharmaceutical companies, device companies. Because we are a SaaS, you know, software as a service platform provider, we build software that better physicians and patients. As a result of that, being able to demonstrate good evidence, good outcomes, pharmaceutical companies would partner with us and they would help us uh, further distribute or promote our software. And as a result of working with them, they would pay us certain software licensing fees. So healthcare is a little bit complicated, right? There's a lot of stakeholders in, in the ecosystem. So uh, the business model was not very, very direct or very clear in the beginning. But I have to say, right, uh, you know, ultimately, it's about the private or the public payer. So right now, you're working with these kind of pharmaceutical companies and right then, they'll be really concerned about, I think, the security of the data and making sure that the data is kind of private, right? And what were some of the steps that you've taken to show and prove to them to their satisfaction that you were able to protect this data? Yeah, very good question. So credibility is extremely important. Integrity and credibility is extremely important in this industry. So um, as you said, it's taking steps to demonstrate to them that we care about data security, right? This could entail, um, for example, getting ISO qualifications around web and data security, ISO 27001. That was something we had not thought of uh, 10 years ago, right? We had not envisioned, right? So, so five years ago, we went through these ISO qualifications. It's about, you know, enabling certain encryption, right? Using certain technologies to encrypt the data, to protect the data. Uh, at the same time, it's also embarking policies like GDPR, the various policies around the world. So again, all of these things demonstrate that we as an organization, we as a startup, as a company, we care and uh, we will follow web and data security. And then can you talk to me a little bit about the team that you've put together to kind of basically build this solution? Yeah. You know, honestly, I'd say I'm pretty lucky and I'm, I'm very thankful because, um, you know, all the core team members have that are here today have been with the company. I don't, I'm not going to say been with me, but been with the company for the last 10 years, right? Our co-founders, our co-founding team members, we've had to make additions, right? To beef up certain capabilities around engineering, around medical domain, marketing and whatnot. But um, yeah, again, there's honestly nothing to complain about because we've been very fortunate. The, you know, the core team has stuck together. But you know, looking back, it's really just trusting each other in our various disciplines and specialties, right? Um, we have somebody that's doing business development. Of course, I do a little business development. I do some fundraising. I do strategy and whatnot. But I'm not a technical person. So we have uh, one or two senior members that are very, very focused on product design, uh, engineering, and soon we will be making addition to medical and regulatory affairs. But I think you know what has really worked well is that we trust each other to do the jobs right, to make the right calls, again, in our various disciplines. How did you meet your co-founders, like your technical co-founders, your technical team? So one of the co-founders, you know, co-founding members has been, I've been working with her for, I want to say 15 years. And then, um, you know, one of our, our product head co-founders was actually introduced by one of my very first angel investor. Taiwan is a very, very small community. So I knew of him already prior to, to really, you know, getting together and running this company. But it, it was through one of my earliest investors slash board member who knew him really well and made that introduction. So again, that trust, that introduction, that referral is very, very important. 
did you have like a lot of trouble pitching them your vision and your kind of what you wanted to get? Or like, did you feel like they got it right off the bat? I think they got it right off the bat. I do believe, again, I mean, to this day, whether it's pitching whomever we're pitching right now, I believe we're trying to solve a huge problem, not just for individuals, but for society, aging society, right? Like that of Japan and Taiwan. So I think people get the story. It's, it's a big enough problem. It's a problem that really hits home to many families. So no, you know, luckily I've not had to really pitch hard. What might be hard is really pitching, why us? Why this team? Why this product? Why this approach to solve the problem that I just mentioned? And how do you usually respond? Um, I keep mentioning the word fortunate, right? So again, we've demonstrated, you know, thanks to our product, we've demonstrated that we've been able to really create a sticky user base. In our case, when users are sticky, they will use the product and they will continue to contribute their data, whether it be behavior data, biometrics. And I think that's what the ecosystem wants to see. That's what investors in the ecosystem wants to see because they want to see efficacy. They want to see real traction of users using it and improving on the disease management, disease condition, right? So fortunately, we've had all that. And uh, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of hard work, right? It's been 10 years, right? At each stage, it's about a different issue we need to tackle. But again, I think you know we're at a point in time where we are one of the few companies left in diabetes management that has an app and a portal. Certainly one of the, probably the only company, the only digital health company in Taiwan that has really scaled overseas with global multinational pharmas. And, you know, just last month, we got our first software as a medical device approval from TFDA. So again, we went from a mobile internet company to a medical device company, but we're software as a medical device. Yeah. So I think people are looking for, um, you know, staying power. Investors are probably looking for staying power. They're looking for efficacy data traction, and then they look towards, you know, team's vision and roadmap on how you intend to execute beyond Taiwan. I think that's the team and its execution from here looking towards the future. So if I understand correctly, right, there's like a physician portal, the patient is kind of putting their data on the system. How does that compete with maybe the hospital has, the doctors have, right? They have their own systems. How do those play with or not play with? And are they competitors? Like, how's that sort of like? There's absolutely no competition here, except I would say it's complementary. So imagine, again, going to whether it be a Taida or Rongzong or any of the large hospitals, clinics. You go there, you get your diagnosis, you get your blood check, then you get your prescription. You come back in the next, they say, okay, I'll see you. Hey, John, I'll see you in the next two to three months. That's it. So for in, in, you know, in any given year, as a chronic patient, you only see your physician no more than 30 minutes. So for the majority of the time, whether you're at home, you're working, your body is operating as usual. And for certain people, it is deteriorating. That's how complications and conditions uh, happen. But what does it mean then? So how, do, how can doctors treat you on a day-to-day, on a real-time basis? They cannot. You and I, we may look the same. We may have the same weight, similar height, similar BNI. But our biometrics or the way our body responds to sugar, glucose, salt, calories, fructose may be completely different. That's where daily monitoring, daily intervention is needed for chronic patients. Okay. Again, the example I'll say is, you know, there could be two diabetics, two Tanyao Bing, where their A1C, Tanghua could both be 7.5 or 7, but the way their glucose fluctuates before they go to bed, when they wake up in the morning, when they have a burger, when they have a drink, can be completely different. And the one that has a more volatile glucose will have a higher chance of kidney failure or stroke as a result of the more volatile glucose. But you don't see that in your two to three month routine visit back to the doctor. 
you know, not, not to mention we have a lot more other data points now, right? I'm, I'm wearing my Fitbit that tracks my sleep, right? And I think in a few years we'll, we'll have, uh, we'll have all these devices track our, uh, ECG, electrocardiographs. You know, it will, it will track uh, blood pressure. These hardware technologies are phenomenal. And the more data that we have, the better grasp we as individuals, whether we're healthy or if we're a patient, we will have better grasp and better control of our health, right? And it's in a way you can think of it as biohacking. 10 years ago, people were talking about quantified self, right? But back then it was really just a pedometer, right? But now it can be a plethora of, of physiological, biological data. So no, no, it does not compete, right? And if anything, digital health, the sector that we are in, it enhances, it amplifies many aspects of the existing healthcare system. How did you get your first users? Um, we just put it on the, uh, on, the, on, on the app stores, right? Whether it be uh, the Apple or the Android app store. And of course, we, we've had to do some, uh, some marketing online and offline marketing. You know, we went around to a few uh, diabetes clinics in Taiwan um, and, and asked them to, to support this. Of course, we've had to really paint the picture of, of the value that we are bringing to them, right? They're not just going to promote our app, but it was online and offline. Because when people are first diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes, a lot of them are, are, are scared, they freak out, and they would Google search, you know, Xuetang, glucose, diabetes. And, you know, we were hoping that we would be, you know, one of the top on the list. So that's how we initially started. And that momentum really, really picked up in the last 10 years. And, you know, we have number one market share in Taiwan and Japan right now. But it doesn't stop here, right? Because we're, you know, starting from diabetes actually gives, gives us a very, very good progression evolution into chronic kidney disease management and CVD and heart failure. So uh, my point being, we're not going to stop with our marketing efforts, uh, whether it be offline or, or, or online. What's been some of the challenges of kind of taking a product like this that was developed within Taiwan, kind of made its first impact in Taiwan and going abroad? Like, how did you go about that process? Um, I would say anywhere in the world, whether it be Taiwan or as you mentioned, you know, going out of Taiwan, it's convincing healthcare providers to adopt digital technologies, especially since it's not developed in-house within their institutions. So here we are coming from the outside, giving them a software, telling them that it helps. It helps them, it helps their patients. Why? Why should I use your software? So I think that continues to be the challenge as we continue to deploy overseas. That continues to be a challenge for all digital health companies in the world, simply because healthcare is a conservative industry and doctors are top-notch. It's not easy to convince doctors. And as I mentioned uh, maybe 15 minutes ago, it's about financial incentives and financial economics in the healthcare industry. That is generally not so obvious in the very, very beginning as a result. So how do you convince healthcare providers to adopt technology? So then you had to maybe take the time to educate them on using it and also have to design it to be as simple as possible, right? Very, very good point. This is why I think uh, anybody in the space who can demonstrate, you know, I keep talking about traction and evidence, right, will not be easily replaced. Because anybody coming into this industry will need to go through the same hurdles. It's collecting the real-world evidence. Or in the industry of healthcare, they call it RWE. RWE, RWD, real-world data, real-world evidence. It's collecting that and then be able to demonstrate that this evidence shows the efficacy of your software. It shows the efficacy of a specific drug. It shows efficiency. It shows how the software is giving the doctors or the clinics a better ROI, return on investment. So these things take time to prove. In many cases, it takes months, sometimes one year or two years. 
I mean, you, you look at drugs, right? I mean, I know we're not talking about biotech today, but you look at biotech drugs. Drugs take 10 to 12 years to develop, to go to market, the need to go through phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. And of course, digital health is not as complicated as biotech or uh, molecules, but it takes the evidence and the traction still takes time. That's my point. What effect are you looking for in this case when you're trying to prove the efficacy? I guess you can show them, oh, they did their data, right? But then like, how do you make that jump? There are multiple points. So in traditional clinical trials, there are primary and secondary um, you know, endpoints. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the points that we look at. We'll look at better glucose control. And glucose control can be demonstrated in A1C, or your xuetang, uh, that you get off your finger, you know, your tip of your finger by finger pricking. We're looking for reduced volatility. We're looking for reduced uh, episodes of hypoglycemia, because for diabetics, when you go into a hypostate, you can faint or go into a coma and you're shipped to the ER, right? You need to be taken to the ER. So again, we're looking for a reduction of hypoglycemia incidences. We're looking for better adherence, better adherence of drugs uh, to your medication. So in the, in the case of cholesterol, you know, better uh, lipid profile or uh, better volatility on your blood pressure. So it's all the above. And I'm glad you asked this because in traditional medicine, it's very, very difficult to capture half of the endpoints that I just talked about. Right? Maybe they can capture A1C, they can capture your lipid profile. But when it comes to adherence, when it comes to volatility within a week, within a month, not possible without digital tools. So if you're building this product, right, and you're iterating on it, you're adding new features, how do you come up with new ideas or how do you bring in new ideas in? Like what's kind of the your process for kind of building out the product roadmap? So I would say traditionally, we get feedback from our end users, you know, namely our patients, as well as the healthcare providers that use our platform. Like we get feedback all the time. So traditionally it has been that. But I will say what could be a science component to this is now that we're collecting all this data and we will continue to collect all this data, you know, how do we get our data as scientists and data engineers to look into the data and look for patterns on how we change behavior? How do we get better behavior, right? I think that will be the really interesting and exciting part of this business going forward. Again, not possible in the past due to the lack of data. But coming back to the fundamentals, it's literally just hearing out what our users have to say. As simple as that. What do you kind of think about and have to say about like the future role of like AI? You mentioned because a company where this has a lot of data. What are your thoughts about deploying kind of new types of AI into your product? So I'll tell you what I envision first. And I think we're not too far away from that. I will take a step back and say, 10 years ago, when I first, uh, you know, when I first registered this company, I was looking at a video by a very, very famous portfolio company of a, of a famous uh, Silicon Valley company called Excel Ventures uh, in Palo Alto. So this company, they showed a video of a young lady waking up in the morning, going to the kitchen dining table, having her cereal. And instead of a marble or a wooden table, it's an LCD glass table. And then all these um, icons started popping up, right? And then she starts tapping on it, beep, 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 beep. And then all these biometrics start popping up. So I think we're actually two to three years away from that. Point being, again, the Fitbit that I wear, which captures my daily sleep patterns. You know, there are devices that capture blood pressure, glucose. Um, I can record food with health to sinks, AI, food recognition. So all this type of data will be thrown into the cloud and analyzed. And, you know, there's a Taiwanese company, a Taiwanese sports equipment company that projects a, a hologram in the mirror. While we have home infrastructures, whether it be, you know, powered by Amazon or Google or the likes of these large, uh, you know, big tech companies. So the infrastructure, the hardware, the data is all there. So what sort of analysis and engagement do we want to give normal day citizens as they wake up, whether they're healthy 
health conscious or chronic patients, right? So from all that data, what do we tell them the first thing in the morning? Your sleep score was 86 last night. You're, you titrated you know, 12 units of insulin yesterday. Your glucose has been looking stable. No need to titrate further, right? You know, the system could know, could read my Google calendar and know that I'm going to have a burger or a steak on Friday night. And this system was even smart enough. They know I'm a, I'm a, I have a sweet tooth. I love ice cream. Right? Truth be told. So all this sort of engagement and interaction and coaching, let's call this coaching, can be delivered in front of you on a daily basis. This is exciting. So coming back to your point about AI. Yeah. So you can use all this data, anonymize it, dump it, create proper prompts, proper domain knowledge that we as a disease management company have and leverage AI to scale the service that I just talked about. Whether it be a language issue to scale to many, many countries or to speed up the intelligence of the service. So this, I truly believe we're three years away from that. The only question that I would say that might prohibit the hurdle that might prohibit what I just described from happening is, again, the financial business case. Who's going to pay for that? Do I pay for it as a premium user or does my insurance company pay for this? My doctor sure as hell ain't going to pay for that, right? But yeah, so what is the business model that will continue to drive this innovation and deliver the picture that I just described? Can you talk me through a little bit about Taiwan's digital healthcare ecosystem from your perspective? Like, do you see this industry kind of has like a rich one or how it's changed over the past 10 years? So I would say, um, I mean, as, as an entrepreneur, I'm always optimistic, right? But, you know, realistically speaking, you know, the first six years of the, of the 10 years, the picture was a little bleak, but COVID changed that. It changed that because patients and healthcare providers now realize the delivery of medicine and care can be done over telemedicine. But Taiwan has only been talking about telemedicine in digital health, right? So that worries me a little bit. Granted, things have changed in the last 12 months because honestly, we've had some great uh, public servants that are in the Ministry of Health and National Health Insurance now that get this. What do they get? They understand uh, next generation genetic testing, next generation uh, precision health, regenerative medicine. Right? And they're even talking about digital health, not limited to telemedicine. Again, telemedicine was strictly just bringing the median of care online. But digital health is about enhancing. It's about you know, AI. It's about you know, next generation diagnostics. It's about algorithms. Right? It's about digital therapeutics. You know, I'm, op- I'm optimistic now. We've seen a lot of changes in the last 12 months with our government. You know, talking about the necessary technologies that need to be brought to the citizens, delivered to hospitals, delivered to citizens, and in, in some cases, even talked about what what should be reimbursed. Right? So that's that's all being talked about, and we need to catch up. Germany has been reimbursing, you know, digital health uh, apps for the last two years, and, and Japan started that last year, and Korea has started. And but uh, again, I'm I'm hopeful, right? I'm hopeful, and uh, I think as a startup, we have no you know nowhere to go but continue to move forward. And that's why we're also looking at markets like Japan and Korea. You know, we can't put all our eggs in one basket in Taiwan. Just kind of curious, like what is kind of the NHS system like working with them? Like what's their sort of style? What is kind of their process? When you say NHS, I think you really mean NHI, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. sorry, So first of all, it's a great safety social program that we, Taiwan, as citizens, as a government, we should be proud of around the world. But because it's a security, it's a safety system, it has its baggages, right? It's running out of deficit. It's running out of deficit on an annual basis, right? Luckily, in the last few years, we've had good, you know, our government has a good revenue from semiconductor, from electronics business, where we can offset you know, one side of, of the country's budget with another. But I think our government officials, they're smart enough. They realize that something needs to be done. Things, practices need to change. And, and I think it's, it's going to trickle down. 
So when you work with the working level people, they're hella busy. They got hospitals to reimburse. They got policies to redraft. And, you know, they have this and that. They have the care providers to deal with. I mean, it's a tough job. I have to give it. It's a tough job. You know, that's why I think it needs to happen at the executive yuan, Xinzhen yuan, Ministry of Health level. It needs to go top down for these new policies to, um, to move, right? Again, I would not have been so optimistic two years ago. But having seen the sort of new team that's working on the changes for Jinzu and Yiliao, for Zaisen Yiliao, for um, Suwei Yiliao, and the talks of Jifu, right, reimbursing these solutions, I'm very optimistic. What recommendations and what advice do you have for other maybe digital health entrepreneurs or anyone in just like the health space? What thoughts might you have for kind of in the future? I think for any digital health entrepreneur, I would say um, find a way Find partnerships, whether it be a healthcare provider, a EUN, or a pharma or device company. Find partnerships to deploy your software and start collecting real-world evidence. You have to demonstrate traction. You have to demonstrate efficacy. That's when investors will then further pay up to invest. Of course, all startups in Taiwan all, all face fundraising issues. Again, that's that's also getting better. I know we don't have time to talk about that today, but fundraising has gotten a lot better in Taiwan thanks to you know Women uh, Kuo and various different uh, venture capital firms. But coming back to digital health companies, it's about getting your software, getting your product deployed, even if it means doing free pilots, right? Even if it means there's no revenue, get the software, get the product out, start collecting uh, data to demonstrate efficacy and demonstrate the science that the team is really pitching. Right. Unless you get it out, you can't demonstrate efficacy or science that one preaches. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Any last words or anything you want to pitch for our listeners? Um, you know, I think uh, whether it be uh, you know entrepreneurs or um, whatever we do, right? I want to say you know never give up. If you believe in something, if you can really demonstrate it, don't give up. You will have hurdles. You will have challenges thrown at you. But yeah, find a way to meet it and to engage and solve it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. 